Well, good morning. We're back in the Bible today and in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. You can turn to chapter 26. I'm so excited to finally finish Matthew. We've been waiting to do that all this time, hoping the COVID thing would be over. I actually thought we'd be in it long before this, but now we are. So we're going back. So if you've been with us for the last three years or so in Matthew's Gospel, you can try to recall some of the flow of that book. And we are right at the end of the, the Lord's Supper just finished and they're heading out from there right now. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew 26 verse 30. I wanted us to have something to look forward to when we were back in the school. That's really my plan to do Matthew. But we, we ran out the clock on Philippians so we're going to be here. Alright so this is a conversation that's on the go after the Lord's Supper as they start moving out towards the Garden of Gethsemane. So they've got to go down and cross the Kidron Brook and then go up a hill to the Mount of Olives and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So while they're making that journey, they're having this, this conversation. It's a short passage, but one that addresses some really practical considerations for maturing as a believer, for growing. Um, not so much by instruction, but by example. We kind of pick that up from what happens here. And, and this is a good follow-up to last week when we were in Philippians chapter 4. Remember the lesson there? It was all about contentment. And we emphasized that Paul said he learned contentment. The experience of suffering and deprivation as well as times of abundance taught him contentment because he learned that if he was doing what God wanted him to do, he could trust God and God was going to take care of him. So whatever he had to go through was ordained by God and he knew that it was best for him even if he didn't or couldn't see it at the time. So he could endure hardship and suffering without faltering and he could have an abundance without pride or an overattachment to his abundance because he learned that he could do all things if you remember through Christ who strengthens him. So um, that, he said, was the secret that he had learned. And Peter, the most prominent of the apostles, he has a lot to learn. And he's going to get a lesson. He's going to get a lesson that he'll never forget. Following Jesus, uh, for all of us, is a process of refinement and, and growth. Because just knowing him begins to change us, but becoming like him is quite a process. One that won't be completed really until we see him face to face, but we all have areas that need work, right? Amen? But if you remember from our look at this gospel, Peter seems to have um, a kind of a persistent problem. He's a diamond in the rough for sure, um, all the way through the gospel. His personality and his, his sin often get in the way of serving Jesus well. And he is in need of humility. The kind of humility that leads to breaking sinful patterns. Um, Paul had to learn contentment. Peter has to learn humility. He has to learn to listen to Jesus. He has to learn to process truth for himself in his mind, he has to learn to think before he speaks, and he needs to learn his responsibility to others, because um, he's a pretty bad example sometimes as sort of the leader of the apostles. And Peter's been with Jesus now for more than three years. He still hasn't grasped all of the big lessons for himself personally. He hasn't dealt with the areas where he falls regularly. 
So in Matthew 26, we have another example of that, that that will lead to the great failure that Peter is famous for. So let's follow the conversation. We're going to start at verse 30. We'll kind of work our way through it. So it says, after singing a hymn, that was, at, that was at the end of the Last Supper, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all I will never fall away. Oh, Peter. There you go again, Peter. Peter's words are really coming from a place of devotion to Jesus. You, you could say from a place of love. So the question is, can love ever be tainted by sin? Can we have genuine affection for someone and sin lead us astray in terms of how we're dealing with that person? And the answer, of course, is yes, absolutely it can. Love, like all human emotions and commitments, can be infused with sin. You can love wrong. You can do that. You can love contrary to God's will. I hope you know that because uh, that's sort of a big part of being a mature person is just noticing that. Human affection, human affection is not the highest good that there is, even though our culture seems to be teaching us that it is these days. Human affection can be opposed to God. It can be against God. It's like you love your child. So some people love their child in such a way that their child never does anything wrong. Not that their child actually never does anything wrong. They just think their child never does anything wrong because they're so devoted to them. So it's always the neighbor kid that made the problem start. It's always bad influences from other people, his teacher. And then as he gets older, the police officer. Um, they're all wrong. They're all mistreating my poor darling child. That's love gone wrong. That's devotion gone wrong. Peter loves Jesus, but he's wrong here. He's full of bluster. His love is not tempered or shaped by truth or humility or submission to the will of God. You will all fall away because of me this night. Not me, he says. I, I would think, you know, he should have started to catch on to this sinful pattern in him the day that Jesus called Peter, Satan. Don't you think? Now, I don't want to be too hard on him. Don't tell anybody this, but I have sinned the same sin more than once in my life. I have done that. But all the more reason to learn from Peter's situation, his disastrous boasting. So let's drift back to Matthew chapter 16 for a bit. You can turn there or just think back to that section. That was, that was Peter's best and worst day all on the same day, maybe within 15 minutes of each other. Back in Matthew 16, verse 13, it said, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father 
who is in heaven. So Peter nails it. He has it. He didn't come up with it himself. God in heaven chose to reveal it to his heart. And this is the great confession of faith. This is the sort of the center point of the gospel in a sense. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, he says. Wow, what a privilege to say those words, to be given that by God, to realize that and actually speak that forth. And of course, Jesus blesses him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But then the next thing that happens is this. Verse 21, Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's exactly where love can go wrong. Our desire, our love, is guiding our words instead of God's will. Sometimes those things are in conflict and we have to always choose God. So Peter is acting like Satan. He's actually serving the interests of Satan here. So one minute God is speaking through him and now he is mouthing what Satan would want to say to Jesus. Don't die. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't suffer. Because Satan knew that that was the plan. This shall never happen to you, he says. So Peter's telling Jesus the very purpose for his coming into the world should never happen. The whole reason shouldn't happen. He shouldn't go. He shouldn't die. And it's Peter's love speaking there. But he's totally wrong. He's satanically wrong. So if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what else could that mean for one of his men Unless it means that he speaks with authority and we should accept whatever he says. I mean, if that's true, he should have embraced anything Jesus said. Maybe ask questions, but he should have embraced it completely for himself. He says he must be killed and raised again on the third day. And Peter says, no! Who, who is he to speak against the Lord? And that's why Jesus rebukes him so sharply there. That's a really serious sin. Uh, Peter, you want to get behind me there, Satan? I mean, that's bad to be satanic in that way, to speak against what the, Jesus himself says is what's going to happen to him based on w the purpose that he came into the world. So, go back to Matthew 26. It's the same thing. It's the same thing happening. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I shall strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. So not only is Jesus, the son of the living God, saying the disciples are going to fall away this night, all of them, but also Jesus says it's going to happen because of what is written. So it's prophesied that this is what's going to happen. So first Peter pridefully attacks Jesus' own pronouncement, his use of the word all, all of you will fall away tonight. And he's saying, nope, you got it wrong, Lord, that ain't going to happen. Maybe those 10 guys will fall away, but I'm not falling away. And then Jesus says, for it is written. It may be written, 
but ain't gonna happen, master. No siree, not if I'm around. I'm like, Peter, it's in the Bible, you know? Zechariah 13, 7, it's prophecy, it's gonna happen. Jesus is saying that prophecy is about him. And again, I want to stress, Peter, Peter has Jesus' well-being in mind. And of course, he doesn't want to lose him personally. They're, he's his life. He's devoted himself to him. But this is God's will. It's God's plan. Not only that, Jesus already explained that he was going to rise from the dead. He said that as a part of his conversation there in verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter is so struck by the first words, I don't think he even it hears that. I mean, he just stopped listening with, you will all fall away from me this night. It's just emotion. So he's hearing uh, what he wants to hear, and he's responding to what he wants to hear. Verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's what he says. Peter, don't do it. Don't say that. There's no humility here. There's no introspection here. There's no listening to the voice of the Lord here. And you know, it's okay to ask questions, but to bluster like this, it's terrible. He could have said, Lord, what do you mean all of us are going to fall away? I don't think I could ever fall away from you. He doesn't talk like that. No! Let it happen. Peter has a real problem with conceitedness. He's conceited. It's, it's a sin. It's a sin invading kind of self-confidence that he has. This sort of puffed up part of himself. And our, our culture worships self-confidence. It's the highest moral attainment people can reach, I think, in our culture. One entertainer said, confidence is the most beautiful thing you can possess. No, no, it actually isn't the most beautiful thing you can possess. It's a fine tool for many things. Uh, learning a skill, a trade, developing an ability to lead when called upon to do so. There's a lot of good things about self-confidence. It's not a bad thing inherently. Roger Staubach, the old uh, Dallas Cowboys quarterback, he, he said confidence comes from hours and days and weeks and years of constant work and dedication. Well, that kind of confidence is good. If, if you're willing to work really hard at some task, learning to throw a football or whatever it is, uh, and you become good at it, and that builds confidence that, yes, I can do this thing. I can make this. I can do this job. That's, a, that's all a good thing. But we're talking about something else here. That kind of confidence is excellent as a tool to be excellent in life. But self-confidence that is infused with sin, that's not good. It becomes conceit, self-conceit. So the scripture uh, is constantly warning us about sinful self-confidence. You know, after listening, Paul, Paul's writing uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he's kind of uh, telling them all the stories about God judging Israel when they rebelled against him or disobeyed in these different times in the wilderness. And Paul says there in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says these are examples are for us living today to look back and say this is what it means to rebel against God. This is how God feels about that. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In other words, all of us that feel like we're doing well, should be really cautious because we can fall 
at any time. That's a very helpful warning. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. So sound judgment is not what is pouring out of Peter here in Matthew 26. It's just emotion. And then the Old Testament, of course, Proverbs famously says, Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Peter's not fearing the Lord here. He doesn't even fear contradicting the Lord. He's being wise in his own eyes. So it doesn't say don't be wise. It says don't think yourself wise. You need to be humble and know that you've got a lot to learn still. The wisest people know they don't know a lot of things and they have more to learn. So this inability to listen, this inability to submit to the Lord, even if you think it's in a good cause, is a serious sin. It's very dangerous. You know who really nails down this sin that I found most in, 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 from the past is this old Puritan, Thomas Watson. So I want to read you what he says about self-conceit. He says, self-conceit is a great sin. Chrysostom calls it the mother of hell. It is a kind of idolatry, a self-worshipping. Whatever acuteness of wit or sageness of judgment you have, think how far short you come. Grace can never thrive where pride and self-conceit grow. As a body with cancer cannot thrive, so neither can the soul thrive which is cancered with pride and self-conceit. A proud head makes a barren heart. A supercilious conceitedness. Oh my gosh, he's using a big word. Uh, Supercilious, that's a word you see in Jane Austen movies. It means to be very self-important and come across as better than other people. He says, a supercilious conceitedness is odious. That means it stinks and much lessens any worth in a person. It is like a great flaw in a diamond. The more one values himself, the less God and angels value him. Let a person be eminent, yet if he is self-conceited, he is loved by none. He's like a physician who has the plague. Though he may be admired for his skill, yet none care to come to him. That makes a lot of sense, huh? So he's talking about the self-conceit. That's what it's like to be a conceited person. So remember here, Jesus spoke to the disciples in this very conversation about the resurrection. He even identified the place they were going to be meeting in verse 32. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. We're going to have a, a big resurrection rally in Galilee and they're all invited. That's going to be happening. Peter didn't even hear that. I mean, the vibrations in the air must have landed on his eardrums and vibrated his eardrums to hit the little stirrup and anvil in there and send signals to his brain where those words actually came in and were processed. But he didn't hear it. He wasn't listening to that at all. He didn't hear Jesus talk about the resurrection or meeting again in Galilee after his death. He was too conceited to listen. He's too self-absorbed. So self-conceit can block your ears. It just doesn't want to listen. So this is a serious and spiritually dangerous flaw for any servant of God. It's a foundation for spiritual disaster. And I have seen it happen in people in ministry over and over again. It's tr- 
tragic. It's, it's death. It's such a spoiler. Self-conceit, it has to be fought against and mastered and stamped out. I think Matthew Henry said it right when he said, those are least safe who are most secure. Satan is most active to seduce such. They are most off when they are most off their guard. And I think that's totally true. So, uh, well, Jesus is not about to let his friend go into the apostolic ministry with this besetting sin still in him. Peter was the first of the apostles. He was the most prominent of the 12. He's, he's mentioned first in all the lists of the 12. It's always Peter and then so-and-so. He, and in some sense, he really acts as the leader. I mean, that definitely is the position he sort of held. Um, if you look at the book of Acts... Uh, he's the guy that leads the call to replace Judas. It's his idea. Hey, we gotta, we got to get a 12th guy here. That's Peter initiated that. Ananias and Sapphira, they drop dead at Peter's feet. His healing touch is incredible. He, he can just pass by and his shadow falls on people and they're healed. Uh, he raises a dead girl. And while all the apostles can lay their hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit, it's really emphasized that Peter is the one that, that does that. Peter and John are the ones recorded doing it in Acts chapter 8. And then Peter's the guy that calls out Simon the magician in Samaria and puts him down. Peter's chosen by God to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. And he is a key figure at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So Peter's definitely top of the line there. Paul even later on in one of his letters says, you know, he's telling the story of when he went to Jerusalem to meet the, the pillars and Peter is, is one of those. So he's definitely way up there in the apostolic band. All through that description of Peter in the book of Acts, he is a humble, godly man. But he will never become a humble godly man unless this sinful self-regard, this self-conceit is exposed and dealt with. He has to be set right before the gospel explodes across the world and he becomes the great apostle Peter. So God is going to humble Peter by letting him fall big time right at the point of his pride. So right now, Peter is sure that of all of them, all the disciples, he will be the most loyal and he will be the most faithful. Now we know, looking back, that he sure won't be. And Jesus tells him that right now. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, to Peter, truly, I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, you know, when Jesus says truly, uh, everything he says is important, but when he says truly I say to you, uh, it's time to listen. That's really important stuff. That's when you need to focus. Truly this very night you will deny me three times. Tonight. And Peter, he's not humbled by that. He just doubles down. He's in self-conceit mode right to the end. He loves Jesus, but his heart is filled with personal pride. Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So he flat out contradicts the son of the living God. The man he proclaimed the son of the living God. He contradicts him again. So I think we can say that when people resist what God tells them, 
God is not the one who's in the wrong when that happens. So it's always a mistake to tell God he's wrong. Even if you really want him to be wrong, he's not wrong. You are the one that's wrong if you've got a conflict with him. And it's a sin to contradict him. It's actually a major sin to contradict God. And Peter is the worst here because he won't repent. Not at this point. He won't be corrected. Now we said earlier that Peter has to learn humility. He has to learn to listen to Jesus. He has to learn to process truth for himself. He has to learn to think before he speaks. That's a big problem with him too. And all of those things will be accomplished. He'll learn all of those lessons when he hears the cock crow. At heart, Peter really is a good man and he loves the Lord. But he has this area in his life of pride. He will not let go of it. Most Christians have been sunk in their ministries by pride. That's by far the most common destroyer of ministry. So Jesus, Jesus is rescuing Peter from that, from that destructive pride. And it's going to work, but not yet. He needs to fall. He needs to fall first. So there's one other thing um, we said that Peter needs to learn. We said he needs to learn his responsibility to other people. He was a bad example. And you see that right at the end of verse 35. All the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter says, there's no way I would deny. I would go to death before I would ever deny you. And all the other apostles said the same thing too. Do you think they would have said that if Peter didn't say it first? I don't think so. They may all have been inclined to believe that they wouldn't fall away, but Peter is the one giving voice to that inclination. And then they jump on board after he speaks. So he led them to deny the words of Jesus himself. And now they're all denying it. We would not do that. No, that's not going to happen. In reality, they would all pretty much go their own way and hide, go into hiding. John is the only one that kind of stealthily snuck along behind and was a witness of the crucifixion, but the other ones all ran away completely. And John wasn't actually saying, hey, I'm John, I'm the apostle. He wasn't doing that either. None of them, none of them shone with courage that night. But Peter, the leader on this day, He's being the leader in sin. This is right after the Lord's Supper, guys. And he's going to be humiliated and he's going to weep bitter tears. When he denied Jesus, not once, but three times, boom, 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 three times. In fact, if you skip down to verse 69, there's the story right there. You can see what happened. Matthew 26, 69 Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. You've got a Galilean accent, bud. Then he began to curse and swear. 
I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That is a blessed weeping. It's a life-changing weeping. And we should weep like he did over our sins. Paul talks about, uh, in 2 Corinthians, about grieving over sin after he kind of chastised the Corinthians for their failure to uphold holy standards in their church, failing to discipline a church member that was in gross sin. And, and he speaks there, Paul speaks of godly sorrow. We all know people can become sorrowful about the consequences of being caught for their sins, but not sorrowful for the sins themselves, right? Many people are like that. Godly sorrow grieves way more about the sin itself as an offense against God than it does about getting caught. Here's uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Here's Paul. He said, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful not, he says, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So let me start that over again. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. He didn't want them just to be sad about it. He wanted them to be sad in a godly way that led to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Peter had godly sorrow. The words of Jesus pierced his heart when he heard the cock crow. He was guilty. Guilty of pride. Guilty of not listening. Guilty of speaking out of impulse and not being wise and thinking about things. Guilty of failing others by setting a horrible example to them. So Peter, by God's grace and goodness, was gripped by the reality of his guilt before God for denying Jesus and not listening to Jesus in the first place. And godly repentance followed that. So we can learn a lot from Peter, from the man he was and the man that he became. We can learn from his specific errors, not to do those kinds of things, to deal with those things in ourselves, not listening to the word of God, um, speaking before we think, all those kind of things, being a bad example. We can learn from all of that, and we can learn from the repentance that God granted him that was so sincere and really was transformative. You don't see him acting like that in the rest of the Bible. In, in his letters, he doesn't speak like that. The book of Acts, he's not like that. Uh, he changed. He was a changed man. So we all have to let God's word cut us deep, right? That is what it's designed to do, to cut deep within us and the, the, our hearts and expose things in there that we need to repent of. But if we bluster and um, put out our views or our feelings above what the Bible says, then we're in a really bad place, a very sorry, sorry place. But if you're a Christian, God's going to mature you. If you're a stubborn Christian, God might use your own sin against you to teach you. And when he does, remember that humility leads to maturity. But if you start listening attentively and quietly to the word of God now, 
letting God's word shape your mind and shape your heart, you will do very well. And you might avoid the hard road to godliness that Peter had to travel. The, the best path to growth is humility before the Lord at the beginning. Start there now. And you might avoid some of these more horrific experiences that Peter had to go through. But God will take you through them if that's what you need. So learn from Peter's example. His good example and his bad example. Let's pray. Lord, spare us from ourselves. Help us humble ourselves before you. Before you must do it to us. And if it comes to that, may we be noble-hearted like Peter and weep true tears of repentance when you expose our sin. Father, we're just so thankful for your goodness, your grace. We know that you want to shape us to be more like Jesus and we thank you for the work that you do in us. We thank you for the example of Peter, good and bad, so we can find our way and choose a path that would be pleasing to you and most beneficial to all those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, next week we'll go into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and the Apostles. We'll see you then.